Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Lonnie Lamb, welcome back to Mormon Discussion. Last time we spoke, we talked about your growing up. We talked about... Your time in California and on the beaches of the ocean, we and what that meant, and your and your parents' flexibility raising you, and, and your ward's flexibility, your bishop's flexibility with you and other members of that ward, and then you tell us about going to uh, having some time in in the music industry, uh, working under uh, Columbia Records, and from there you go to to Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. And you go to Rick's College, and you get your associate's degree, and you meet a, a wonderful guy there, Russ. Oh. You then head off to BYU, Hawaii, spend some time on one of the most beautiful places in the entire planet. Mm. You you get engaged, you get married, and you come back to Idaho. You start your life. Life has its bumps like all of our lives do. And and eventually your husband gets employment in Dallas, Texas, your your parents also moved to Texas as well, although they're a little ways away. And you say, like, now here's this new segment of our life. And you mentioned in the last episode, as you closed out, you mentioned being called to teach gospel doctrine. And you teased out this idea that you began to see the red flags for your husband beginning what what is going to be a serious faith transition. Maybe walk us through the gospel doctrine time in, in that calling and what that meant to you and some of your experiences there. Yeah. Okay. And thank you so much for having me back. I, I'm so excited about it. Um, so gospel doctrine, the way I came into that calling was actually pretty unique. So they had called me in to give me a different calling and I had never had it happen where, um, the spirit like slams into the door trying to get out of the room. It was so weird. Like I just knew that they were extending me the wrong thing. It was so weird, but they're humans, right? Like they're learning too. So I turned the calling down that they had asked me to, to, to serve in. And I remember Russ was sitting there because we had, we had started, um, because I had seen these red flags, we were really trying to. Oh, I was, we were trying to compromise in some areas and I was, I, um, and we'll get into that later, but I did not want to feel the pressure of attending church every Sunday if I had to, um, with a calling. And, um, so I told them, I said, I, I'm so sorry, but I have to turn it down. I don't feel like it's right. And I remember just being mortified because I'd never done that before. And I leave the office and I, I, that I was in and I go into the cultural hall and Russ follows me in and I just start to cry. And I was like, I don't know what I just did in there, but it was not right. And he was like, Russ, nothing shocks Russ, but Russ was just like, I don't think what you did was bad. Like, do, do you like whatever, no big deal. But, um, I had, he had been called to sub. Like they called 
he had gotten a phone call to sub gospel doctrine one day and he did not want to do it. And this was before I knew really fully that he was checking out completely. So he didn't want to teach it because he didn't believe what, what was he was going to teach. So when the guy called, he said, Hey, um, why don't, uh, why don't you think about it? And, and then call me back. And, and my husband was like, well, let me talk to my wife about it. So they get off the phone and Russ comes into me and he's like, I, um, I really don't want to teach that class. So I think you could do it. And I was like, I cannot teach gospel doctrine. I, you know who sits in those classes? I was like, no way. I can't, I'm not doing it. No way. They'll think I'm crazy. I was like, Russ, the way I teach is like stories and they need like doctrine. I'm not good at that. And he was like, Lonnie, you'll be great at it. Just, just, or I'm going to have to call him back and tell him no. I'm the, to find somebody else. And the guy was sick. The guy that, that, that needed to be, I just felt so bad for him. So I remember I went in to pray about it. I went in my closet because I was like, I got to pray about this. I, I just don't know if I can do this. So I went in my closet to pray about it. And I, I remember having this, the distinct impression. This was the calling they were supposed to give you. And my heart, like, like even telling you the story, I have like my hair is standing up on my arms. Like this was what, this was what I had in mind for you. So I remember like saying to Heavenly Father, like, no, I don't think you quite understand. And it was, it was more like, go and try it, go and do it. So I told Russ, call him back, tell him I'll do it. And the lesson was something about like loving Christ. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can totally do that. So I, um, I taught it and Bill, it was like breathing. It was like, I loved teaching that class. And I, I just felt like, oh my gosh, this was it. This was what I was supposed to, <laughs> this was what I was supposed to be doing. So at the time I had a really close friend, um, whose husband was in the bishopric and I told her this feeling that I had had and they were looking for a gospel inst- doctor instructor, I guess. I didn't know that at the time, but they were looking for one and she's like, let me, this is very not normally how it works, but let me see. Long story short, that's how I ended up with a calling and I taught it for two years. But what got really hard was um, our second son, right around this time, our second son, or our third, excuse me, our third, I had, I had had a baby and um, he needed to be blessed, right? And I knew that Russ was questioning because of some of the conversations that we had been, that he had been bringing up. One was like tithing and another one was I had my dearest friend that I will talk about um you know, as we get deeper that really sat with me through this whole thing, her husband was experiencing the same thing. And, um, it was, it was so, it was so hard. It was so hard because I was seeing it. I was, and I just, sometimes you just don't want to admit that it's happening in front of you. And because I think it's so scary to think that it would be such a deal breaker if your spouse having been so orthodox, right, your whole life, if your spouse decided that that wasn't going to be a part of your life anymore. Um, and I remember the baby blessing came. My in-laws were out and um, I had said to my mother-in-law, I was like, he's just acting so bizarre. Like I lately, I just don't even know. He's he's defending people that are that are walking away. He's he's really questioning tithing. He doesn't understand why they won't tell us, you know, and I was like, this just seems so. Anyway, she said, you need to get down to the bottom because she had noticed it in her time visiting us for the blessing. She had noticed it, too. And um, she's like, you need to get down to the bottom of this. You need to sit him down and figure out what's going on with him. And and so I 
So they, we have the baby blessing. Russ gives a gorgeous blessing. He, he follows through with it, which I want to just say, knowing what he was going through at that time now, I think he is so courageous and so brave that he followed through and that he did it anyway. And he still gave a beautiful blessing. And, um, and so, uh, my in-laws leave and I ask him to come in and sit down on the couch in our living room. And I said, Russ, I don't know what is going on with you, but you know from our past that you can trust me and you know that I will love you no matter what. But please tell me what is going on, please, because I can tell there is something is not right. And Bill, I had because I'm this type of person that I'm a planner and I want to plan for the things that I think might happen even. And that's really unhealthy. That's what got me into therapy, my own personal therapy. Uh, That's a whole nother story. But that. I would do that. I would, I'm, I would wait for the, the next shoe to fall, but I would want to be prepared for that shoe. And, and so in my head, I had thought of every case scenario that he could tell me. And I was, it was going to be okay because I had every single way that we were going to work through that so that we could make our marriage work. And so I, again, I, I just, I sat there and we sat in silence and he put his head down and I was like, mm-hmm, I'm sure that I have come up with whatever he is going to tell me. And I remember him lifting his head up and looking at me and he said, Lonnie, I really don't believe the church is true anymore. And I remember being like, oh, no. But I thought of a worse word that I said in my head at that time. And I was like, holy crap, I did not plan for this. No, 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 no. Go back, go back, go back. No, 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 no. This isn't happening. This is not happening. It was panic. It was like. Like, I just, I get emotional thinking about it now because that poor girl at that time, I was so terrified. I was so scared. I, I, and I, but I knew that I couldn't, at that time I had gotten into, oh no, I don't think I was into Brene Brown yet. So I wasn't aware that I, I needed to sit in that discomfort yet. But I, but I also didn't want to abandon him because I had learned that through therapy. We needed to sit through this and we needed to talk about it, but it was like, Oh, I'm not ready for this. I'm not prepared for this. I'm not strong enough for this. You know, the, the critic, the inner critic was there to, to discourage me and to tell me that this wasn't going to be okay. And, um, yeah. I want to ask because, and there's two things kind of going on. One is the calling, which I just want to just make the statement that for, for you to have not been the person called to substitute teach and your husband essentially says like, you should do this and you teach this lesson and you said it just went so wonderful. And then shortly thereafter, the ward calls you as the Sunday school teacher. Uh, I just think it's an amazing, amazing thing to kind of have this one flexibility in your home that that happened. And two, for these guys to, to be open to that. And, and you said it was such a blessing in your life, right? Oh yeah. Well, and, and, um, because I knew the bishopric, uh, members, they were, they were just really good guys and, and they were the type of people that could sit back and say, you know, we're all learning about how this works and the way callings are. Cause you know, as a growing up, you, you're told that there's like this one way that callings are made. Right. And it's like, okay, there's a name that's put down and, um, they pray about it and they receive revelation about it. And, and then, you know, you're, you're kind of like, you're picked based off, what that revelation says. And, and they were kind of the ones that first tell me that, well, that's not always the way it works. And so it was a beautiful experience because the way I came into the calling was not the traditional way of the way they give callings. So, um, 
And Russ was raised in a home where his mom was very supportive of women and, um, and I, I don't, um, her mom was, was, was pretty big on women's rights. And, and so I think that, um, he was, he was just raised in an environment where his mother was not, she didn't really fill the role of, of staying home homemaker. I mean, she was home with the kids, but, but she also had her right as a woman in the home. And, and so I think he grew up that way too, believing that I could, I could all with something as little as a calling, right? I could also teach gospel doctrine. It didn't just have to be somebody that was a return missionary or a male teaching that role. And, and there's plenty of female gospel doctrine teachers, but, um, I just, yeah, that's kind of how that, the way that played out. And, and, and it was a blessing in my life because, um, when I first was extended the calling, I think that was right around the time that I was seeing the red flags, but I think we were a little deeper into it. I think I knew I, it's, it's a little fuzzy, but, and I know that I said, I, I, I got, you get a little like, you know, the time frame on things cause it's been about five years, but, um, it was good because it quote unquote kept me in the boat when all of the stuff was going on with Russ. So it, it, we were studying the new Testament, which is my favorite section out of, out of all the works. I'd like it better than the book of Mormon. I like it better than the Pearl of great price. I like it better than the old Testament. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it, the, the new Testament fills me in a way that no other works fill me. And, and I was able to, to really heavily dive into that and really know the savior. And I think that was another tender mercy too, because because I was studying every, you know, I would, I would plan for those lessons from the time I left the lesson that I gave. So I taught every other week. So I had two weeks to prepare and I took those two weeks and I prepared every single time. So it, it, I got to know, I, I really created this intimate relationship with my savior and, and when all of this stuff was happening with Russ and our marriage and the family dynamics and, and all of that, I, I was able to really um, have this relationship that had been built because I was teaching gospel doctrine. So you, you talk a, a little bit here about Russ and, and seeing the red flags and him beginning to have questions and him beginning to kind of step back a little bit from his Mormonism. And, and I want to get a feel um, from you, like, what are the issues? Because everybody listening, there's about 10 different things that kind of send us into this space, but, but maybe what were some of the issues that early on, like the first things he's wrestling with that are sending him down the proverbial rabbit hole? Okay. So, um, of course he would tell his story the best, but I can say that, that the, the red flags for me, and they were two really big red flags that just kind of led into all of it. But the first one was we, um, so my, my, we lived in Dallas at the time, of course, and, and my brother lived in San Antonio. My, I don't think my parents were there yet. I think they were just building their house. So, um, we would go visit my brother and his family and then we would have these. So Dallas and San Antonio are about five, five hours apart. So we would have these long car rides back and, um, in a couple of the car rides, we, we would listen to podcasts and, um, and I think it was the first time that something about tithing got brought up. And I've always been, I mean, I, I mean, growing up in the church, it was like, you paid your tithing. I remember when I was doing chores, I would get a dollar for like cleaning the whole house. 
And my mom was like, okay, 10 cents, you know? So I just, the law of tithing, which I think is a good principle. It's, you know, you, you give your increase, right? And there's plenty of people that need that. But, um, I, he started making comments about being very bothered with the fact that he had no idea where his money was going. Now this was coming from a time because we were listening to things and and he was seeing things on the news with people starving all over the world. Disease was horrible and that you were sitting here in the U S in this, in, in this land of, of, we have a lot of opportunity and, and yes, there's issues with, with homelessness and there's, you know, we have our own set of problems, but the stuff that he was seeing on the news, it was like, how, why are we not like, where is our money going that we're giving to the church? Like he, he had, he started having really big issues with that. And then I started noticing that he would defend people that were leaving the church. And I had a really hard time with that because I, I was, I would go to those places in my head that I had been told my, my entire life that, you know, they, they, they weren't strong enough or it's the wheats and the tares. This is part of the weed out. Or, I mean, saying this just sounds so judgmental and so barbaric almost that you would think this of another human being, but it's like, that's where, what I was taught. That's what I believed. Right. And, and he did not, he was starting to, he was like, no, like I get why people are leaving. And, and that would bother me. So those were like, those were the two really big red flags before I actually pinned him, him down and was like, what is going on? Because this isn't you, you, you were more orthodox than I was when we came into this marriage. So I, I don't, what's going on. And that's when he told me everything. And then of course all, you know, the, his Russ's real reason why he has decided that he wants to live his own truth is, is what many people talk about is the history that is not shared. And, and it's not anti-Mormon information that, that he brought me to show me. It's, it's stuff, a lot of the stuff is right in, the, right on LDS.org. You just have to go digging for it. So it's, it, it, that part of it is really uncomfortable because it's kind of like been under your nose the whole time and you just didn't know it. But those are the, that's, those are the things that really, you know, the tithing and people leaving woke him up and then it was like, okay, what, you know, that, that's what sent him down. I guess what you, what people call the rabbit hole. So you make this awareness right now, like you're acknowledging like, yeah, I'm in a different place than my husband, but yeah, there's some things that are right there on the church's website. And then there's other things that seemingly should be there that aren't. Do, do you, do you have that recognition in that moment? Like, do you notice in that moment, like while you're holding this different space than your husband, do you find your mind saying like, he has some really good points here and I don't have very good answers for this? Okay. So no, it did not happen like that right away. In the beginning, it was so horrible. Like, so the day that he told me, I, I really, Bill cannot remember a time when I felt despair and fear like that. And, and I think it was because I just went to the whole, this is a deal breaker. Like I, I don't, not that I was going to ever leave him that never, ever crossed my mind. And I never would have, but it, it was like you, as a girl, I gave my whole life to this church and I dated really, really good non-members, but they were never an option for marriage because I was, I had to marry in the church. So I, 
when, when you first are told that and you're me, so not everybody's going to be this way, but that's, that was kind of one of the things that went through my head. Oh my gosh, I could have married anyone. And really that's not necessarily true, but that's a thought that, that you have. And, and I know that I'm not the only one who's had that because I've talked to other women that have gone through this and they have thought the same thing. And, and then you think you go through the list of all the stuff that they say can happen if you don't have the church in your home, which is your husband cheats on you. He becomes an alcoholic. He becomes a drug addict. Your children become drug addicts. Eventually they start having sex out of marriage. Like you, you, all those things that scare you, that send this fear skyrocketing up your back and into your soul that like you become paralyzed and, and I just like didn't even know what to do with that fear because you're told all these things to fear, but you're not told how to handle it. So it's, it's like the only places you can go in your head is, well, you've been deceived. How do I get you back? So you go into this, like where you want to build this fortress to protect your family, but yet you're fighting your husband because he doesn't want that fortress built around him. And I think I remember telling him in that conversation that I did not want him to talk to my family because I wanted to protect my own family. And I, and I didn't know which was wrong to do because my dad since then has been like, that was not your call. Like you had no right to tell him not to come talk to us because he just wanted to talk. He, he figured my parents would be open-minded about it, which they would have been. But, and I think they would have been, they would have, felt a little bit of fear just knowing that like how I was going to react to it. But, um, and at this time, of course I didn't know about anything on the, on the internet. I, I just only knew of LDS.org of what I had been told to go, you know, Oh, you have the, the, the fun, you know, videos that you can watch and you have all the talks on there and you, you know, um, and so I think that first week I just mourned a lot. Like I just felt so depressed and so alone. And, and I mean, I remember, I remember like standing, doing the dishes, standing over my kitchen sink and I still had two kids at home. So I had to be so careful about the way I processed my emotions, but it was like, I would just sit and clean dishes and ball my eyes out because I could not believe that this was my life. I had done everything that they had told me to do to have this marriage that I thought I was going to have that was going to carry into the eternities. But the thing that I want to point out too, and this is all hindsight, right? So it's all 2020. But the thing that I want to point out is number one, just because somebody leaves the church does not mean that, Oh, I left it because I want to go drink and I left it because I want to do drugs. And I left it because I need to sow my wild oats when it comes to intimacy. And I like, I don't really recall in the past four years ever talking to anybody that left for those reasons. And, and the other thing is when you enter into a marriage, it's like this, it's like, I I don't, I don't know why when you enter into a marriage, it's two people, you have no control over the other person. And because you're so young and, and even when you're not young, if you get married later, we change right all throughout our life. So we have no control over, over those shifts and changes. And, and my spouse, my, my incredibly brave spouse was changing and he was developing and he was, he was trying to figure out what he believed his whole life. And, and 
I was not very good in that, those few, that, that first few weeks to a month of giving him room to do that because I was more worried about saving him. I was more worried about, <laughs> I, my parents, I wasn't worried about that anymore. My own family, right? It was like, now I got to save my own family. So it, it was, oh, it was the worst. It was the worst month ever, ever. It was horrible. Doesn't it um, seem, doesn't it seem odd, Lonnie, that it, it's almost like, and it's not just Mormonism. I think it's all, any religion that has some rigidity to it, but, but those religions seem to teach that the goal is to just stay the same. Like when th- oh, you get married, you have kids, life has got this kind of rhythm and flow to it. And, and if you're righteous and if they're righteous and your husband's righteous, then everything will just stay the same. And, and it just seems like it's just human to change. It's human to shift. And, and the church makes any kind of shifting or changing seem like a negative thing. Well, yeah, I don't, I think it's our heavenly father and our heavenly mother always planned on us growing and changing. And, and yeah, like the, I would say that the church makes it negative if, if the church doesn't stay as a positive, huge thing in your life. If, if you can change and you can shift, but you stay in the church and that, and then that change and that shift is healthy. But if that change and that shift involves you stepping away from the church, it's not healthy. And and that's not a healthy message. Just like creating all that fear, like all of those messages that were shooting through my head when Russ was telling me that he was done was all messages that I had been taught, which are so incredibly unhealthy and not even accurate. So I, I think I could have avoided a lot of pain and turmoil and 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 disconnect in my marriage. Had I just been told that some people just choose a different path and it's okay. As long as they stay true and honest in their marriage and true and honest to themselves. You know, but that's not the message that's taught. Right. Right. So his faith transition now is up and running. And in some ways, your own faith transition is kind of up and running, even if you're both holding different spaces. Maybe tell us, um, tell us about how some of the events, I guess, that are going on during this time. Okay. So I think, I think right around this time I had told him I wanted to create a space. I think I had found Brene Brown by now and Brene Brown, I bring up because she was pivotal in in making this situation, um, a situation of beauty. And, and it was because I learned about vulnerability. I learned about sitting in my pain. I learned about, processing emotions. I learned about naming emotions. I really learned a lot about shame and guilt and how they are not the same and, and how that can be used as a manipulative tactic in, in our lives. And, um, so I was finding that and I was trying to create space to let him in a little bit. And so I told him that I would be open to hearing, to seeing what he had found. But, but if it was like a podcast, I said, please, please, bring me stuff that I can swallow while I'm listening. Like not, let's not go from zero to a hundred here. Like bring me stuff that is, is tolerable to my soul. (laughs) And he was good about that. But what I would do is I would say a prayer before I would read or listen to whatever he brought me. And I would just ask my heavenly family that they would, that they would, I, that I could be open enough to the information that I was listening to, but that I would know whether or not it was accurate or not. 
So I, I, I took that approach and I knew that, that they would protect me in, in whatever avenue they needed to protect me in. Um, the other thing that happened right around that time that's pretty pivotal is that I, I had a really big spiritual experience right around that time. And, um, and, and I'll kind of tell you a little tiny bit about that. I, so I, I'm going to bring up my best friend because she's, he, she, I had, I had two really close friends that, that stuck by me through, through all of this. And one of them is an LDS, but, but, um, the one that I'm going to talk about right now is her husband had gone through the same thing about six months, six months prior. And we would, um, just during this time, I would call her and I would sit on the phone and I would just, we would just cry together because while she was six months into it, she was, she was still navigating her own situation. So we, we would just sit and cry and, not that we would feel bad for ourselves, but it was more of like, okay, we were, we were brave souls and, and courageous souls. And we would just rally each other together and say, you know what, we're, we're, we're strong and we can do this. And, and there was one day that I called her crying. I was really upset because I had been sitting in, um, I had been sitting in with my kids playing a game and just looking at my boys. So I have three boys and, and I, um, just was overwhelmed with, this feeling of responsibility that I had to get them back home, quote unquote, right. To get them to the end. And I had always planned on having a spouse that was on the same page as me in doing that. And now I didn't have that. And, and so I remember like calling her up and just telling her what, what am I going to do about my kids? And, and, and I, and I remember being incredibly emotional about it because I was so scared. I was still so scared. And and it's not that I felt this every day by this time. It it the, that first week I cried all the time and I I just felt horrible depression. It may have been, it may have been the first couple of weeks. But by the time I was having this phone call, this phone conversation with her, the the waves of emotion were were kind of hit and miss. But I remember saying, you know, what am I what am I going to do about my kids? And she said something very interesting to me that really changed the dynamic of this whole thing. She said, your heavenly father and your heavenly mother love you and they love Russ, but they really love those kids and they're not going to let your kids get left behind. That's just not what's going to happen. And, and she said what they are most concerned about is that they are, those children are loved. And she said, your, your boys have the best mother and the best father and they, and you guys are going to love them the way they were supposed to be loved. And, and she said, Lonnie, the other thing that you need to realize is that there is something incredibly beautiful about letting your husband find his own truth and, and, and sit back and let them struggle through it. And when she said that, I had the most like insane set of chills that covered my entire body. And usually when I get that feeling, I'm familiar with that. And that's kind of how the spirit communicates with me. But it's like, that was the spirit telling me she is exactly right in what she says. And it is time for you to step back and not carry this burden anymore. And so I, we finished the conversation and I got off the phone with her and I, I felt like I just needed to kneel and pray. And so for me, like the place to do that is my closet. I know other people have, you know, their shower, they have, you know, their bedroom, whatever, but the closet to me is my place, my go-to place. And my, I was in my kid's room. So I, I went and I kneeled in their closet and I shut the door. And, and as I opened my, my prayer, I immediately, I was given this, this, um, 
I imagined the whole story of Laban and, and Nephi and, and whether or not that story actually happened, it still was very real to me at that time. And it still means something to me now, but that whole story kind of played out in my mind and how Nephi had to do some really, really hard things that he never planned on doing. And, and right about that time, um, I had this impression and, and my impressions are, are, I don't know whatever, you know, what other people hear or how they hear it, but I hear like a message in my mind, but it's not my voice, but it's really not a voice of a man or a woman. It's just kind of like this message. I, I don't know how to really describe it. It's just something that's near and dear to me. But the message was that I'm going to ask you to do some really, really hard things, but I'm going to give you so much grace and we're going to love you through this. And that's really like, it was just this moment where I knew that this whole experience wasn't a fluke, that it was going to be a part of my plan the whole time, a part of my life. And, and while it was shocking to me, it was so um, comforting to me to know that this wasn't something that like just like a mosquito that just bit Russ. It, it, it was a part of his process in his life. And if, and, and that I was the best person to be married to him because I was going to allow him to, to have that process and to take those steps that he needed to, but it was going to take time. So that's, that's kind of where that all happened in the, in the beginning. Yeah. There's, there's a thousand ways these things can go and, and there's nothing, I'm, I'm just telling you, and, and you know this, there's just nothing more crucial than when someone's entire world paradigm shifts to have somebody close to them who's like, okay, fine, let's do this. And, and so often in the church, like there's this, and, and you kind of hint at kind of feeling this early on, like this feeling of, oh my goodness, this is not going to happen. Oh my, I can't believe this is about to happen. And, and there's this almost, um, defensiveness of each other and distancing between each other. And I just, I read so many stories of these things going the exact opposite of the way we all hope they go. I think for you to kind of realize like, oh, this is life. This is a journey and this is okay. And it may not be fun. It may have some real ups and downs, but, but this just is okay. This is going to work out. I think is amazing. And it, and it speaks to the support. I think all of us need on some level when our world crashes, like nobody asked for this. Your, your husband didn't ask for it. He, you know, no. we all want it to stay together. We want nothing more than, than the church to be everything that it yeah. claims to be. And when that doesn't turn out and when someone's like, look, I just have to get to the bottom of this, even if it hurts, like that's just the way some of us are programmed. And it's not, it's not in a way, you know, right? Cause you know this. I mean, the, the, the church often wants to say, and it's leaders and it's, and the apologist and, and different members want to say, oh, they're just, you know, they're just looking for a way out. They were looking for a way to sin. They're looking for a way to be lazy. And my experience is that with the majority of people who go through a faith crisis, they wanted it to be true more than anything in this world. It meant so much to them yeah. that, that they had to figure it out and, and to have that support at home. That, you know, even if you're like looking back upset with yourself that early on you didn't have that vision, I don't think it matters. Like, it, I think we all struggle at first to kind of go like, uh-oh, what happened? I just lost my footing. Um, but I think to have that support at some point that that is there is just immensely important. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I would have to add to that too that um, 
after I had that conversation with my friend, I, that night I had, that was like the biggest, that was the big step in me vocal, like telling him you're free to do what you need to do. But I remember the pain in telling him, like I did not want to tell him that you are free to find your own truth. I didn't want to at all. I, in fact, I, I was so choked up while I was telling him that it was almost just like in my head, I was like, Heavenly Father, like this is just, and I don't mean to say this derog, like I, it was hell. It was pure hell to have to experience those emotions and those, those feelings. But I, I had had this experience where I just was like, they want me to do this. So I'm going to do this. Mm, mm, mm. So where do we go from here, Lonnie? Okay. So right around this time, I think that I, I don't know. I think that I had asked him right around this time to, um, what church was going to look like, because if he was going to honor his truth, it was like, okay, what's, what are we going to do about church? And I, cause I still, I was still teaching gospel doctrine and I still wanted to attend. And, and I wanted the, I was very adamant that the boys still attended this time. So I think that I, at that time I said, will you just attend sacrament meeting and then you can go home? So I didn't want him to have to, or maybe, no, I think what he did, because I think he felt, I don't know whether he felt grateful that I was giving him space, but I think he said, I'll still go to church with you. I'll still support you. Um, and I said, well, you really don't have to do that. And he's like, no, I want to. Cause I think he still felt this fear. So, oh, let me back up a little bit. So the reasons he waited about six months to tell me was one, I was pregnant and he really did not want to screw any of that up. Like he was, he said, I was just worried that it could complicate the pregnancy. And, and I think the stress alone could have probably, I don't know that I would have necessarily maybe miscarried, but I, I, cause I was far enough along, but I, I think that the stress alone could have done, could have caused problems. But so he was right in waiting on that. But the second thing was, was that he was so afraid that once he told me that I was going to get counsel to leave him and to go find a worthy priesthood holder. And, and I know that that sounds like, well, no leader would ever do that, but they have. And I know people that that's happened to. So it, that was, that was the reason that he hadn't told me in that, in that first six months. So I think that he was so grateful to just get like me, to have me throw him a little bit of a bone that it was like, no, I'll still go. Like he wanted to support me as much as he possibly could because I was willing to give a little bit to him. So we started going, I think we started, I think we did that for like two or three weeks where he would go, but I would, I would leave relief society and go check on him. Like I would go peek in at priesthood and the pain that I witnessed in his eyes at that time. Like I remember like looking, I remember opening the door a little bit and I could see his face. And I remember thinking, this isn't fair anymore. Like this isn't fair to him. He was doing this for me because he loved me. And this, this was like, I, I was so grateful for that. But I also like felt this like softening of my heart that this wasn't fair to him anymore. And that I needed to really just whatever he needed to do, he needed to be able to do. And, and so I remember like coming home from church that day. And I remember saying to him, 
are you okay in priesthood? And he said, no, it's torture. It's complete torture. If I'm going to be completely honest with you. And I said, I don't, let's just make it sacrament. Why don't you just go to sacrament meeting? Because I, I was like, I'm, I'm missing out in my classes because I'm worried about you. And I, so that, then there's no reason for me to be there, you know? So, so then we went to like, he just did sacrament with us. So we would drive separate. Um, and then, and then I think, I think right around that time I had another really pivotal experience and that was in, I was in an exercise class, um, that I was taking there in, in the little town that I lived in. And I was, we were in the middle of cooling down and they do like yoga at the very end. It just calms you. And that was something that I was really becoming addicted to because it was calming my soul in such a time of hype. But, um, I remember I was just cooling down. And again, I had the strongest impression, that same type of message that was like, you need to fully let him out of this. And, and then, um, it said, he loves you more than he knows me right now. And he is going to stay doing this because of that love. And I need you to move out of the way so that I can one day reach him. And I had to get up from that class and I had to run out and sit in my car because I just kept saying to my heavenly father, like I, I've given all that I possibly have in this. You're asking me to let go more. Like what if I'm getting, this is going to end up falling completely apart. And I remember that message being so clear that this is part of what I was telling you, that you're going to have to do some really hard things. I'm oh, sorry. So I went home and I did the exact same thing that night and I cried again. And I said, I don't want you to do anything for me anymore. When it comes to church attendance, I need you to just honor your truth. I need you to really honor it. And I need to start being okay with that because that's, what's going to make this marriage beautiful. And so I think at that time we decided that he would attend sacrament meeting on the days that I would teach. And because he still cared, he's like, I still want to be around the people. Like he loved the people in our ward. He's, he had friends in our ward and he liked that community. So he's, and, and really at this time, I don't think, I think we had started telling people because his church attendant, he wasn't attending priesthood anymore and his church attendance was, was drastically dropping. So people were starting to ask questions. And, and I think that that was the second big discussion, like after this had happened that we had, it, it, he said, are you prepared? Cause, cause I said, if you want to start telling people, go ahead. And he's like, Lonnie, the only reason that I have not told anybody is because I'm protecting you. And that was like a huge hit because I was like, that is what that impression meant. He was protecting me. So it, I, I said, no, I'm okay with people knowing. And he said, you know, what's going to happen. The visiting, it's, you know, the, you know, the routine bill, it's like everybody starts swooping in. It's to save whatever it is needs to be saved in it. Right. And, and I, the last thing I needed at this time was pity. And I knew that that was going to be starting to be like dumped on me, the pity of, and, and it did it, 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 there was just some people that don't know how to process what's happening. And I think you find that like when people started really getting to know our situation, you had three types of people that, um, that you would run into. You had the people that were completely willing to sit with you. And then you had people that didn't know at all 
what to do with it when you told them. So they didn't want to be uncomfortable, but they would just give you that pity. And they didn't mean it intentionally at all. But it was like, oh, sweetheart, I don't know how this ever happened. I'm so sorry that this has happened. Um, you stay strong and you get your family home. And it's like, oh, thanks for that. Yeah, because that's the last thing I need right now. But but they've had good intentions behind it. Right. And then you had the people that just you were infected. They could not so associate with you anymore. And and just your mere presence rocked them like being around them. And and that that one really hurt because it was like, heaven forbid, I have a mind of my own and my husband has a mind of his own. Just because I'm the wife does not mean I'm going to follow in his footsteps. And, and even to today, I'm not where he's at. Um, I definitely can understand why people leave and I validate the reason why people are leaving. Um, and I, my church attendance and, and my testimony is very personal and it does not look orthodox, but, um, yeah, it's just, it was just a very emotional time navigating all those things while I was having these experiences where the savior and heavenly father and heavenly mother were like, uh, uh-uh, uh, back up, back up more, back up more. I want to I want to hit on two things that you just spoke to. One is this idea that God is communicating to you that his protection of you is getting in the way of his relationship with God. And and I just want to make a note and you're welcome to speak to this for a moment. I want to make a note to all the listeners that we we've got to come to grips I think as a culture that when someone has a faith crisis and they begin to have serious doubts in Mormonism and they can't put it back together and they're stepping away. What, what traditionally happens with this group of people is at some point they begin to also doubt God and many Latter-day Saints who leave Mormonism end up becoming atheists. They don't join other churches. They don't, they don't find some other spirituality that's in a uh, monotheistic divine being. Rather, they let go of Christianity altogether and often become atheists. And I, I only mention this because I think sometimes us trying to compel someone to stay in the box actually ends up doing worse harm, which is not only getting them to let go of Mormonism, but also having some causation in, in contributing to them letting go of God. And I, and I think we all ought to step back and say, if someone's going to let go of Mormonism, wonderful. But I think spirituality is important. I don't want to be seen here as advocating any certain religion, but I think spirituality is important. And I think the more we can do to support people having spirituality rather than compelling them to have a certain spirituality is, is a positive thing. And when we compel somebody to, to believe a certain thing and they can't make it work and they continue trying to put it together and wrestle with it and take it apart and look at it again. Eventually what they do is they carry that same investigative process over to, to all these other religions and they end up letting all of it go. And I think what you're speaking to is this idea, like, let me get out of the way and let me let him find some peace of mind and still have something there rather than forcing him to fit in this bubble. Yeah. Well, everything, I second everything that you've just said, because that's very much so how it went. Um, I, I don't think that he would label himself as atheist. Um, I do know that, but that's accurate for a lot of people that they, and I was warned about that, um, by that. Gosh, I, I don't even remember who told me this actually. I was going to say by the bishop in Idaho, but that wouldn't have been accurate because we weren't going through this in Idaho. But I, I was warned that there was a, uh, there's a huge pent like shift where you swing from one end to the other end, 
Like they, the church isn't true. Therefore nothing is. And, and that's because of just, you've gone from one extreme to the other extreme, but what became so important. And, and again, cause I had really good parents that was helping me once they, you know, realized what was going on and I was open about what was going on. My dad was more like, Lonnie, just don't lose sight of Christ. Pick whatever church you want to be at, but just don't lose sight of Christ. And, and that was never even a question for me. I, if Russ and I joke around about it now, cause it's like, if it's not in Mormonism, I'm done with organized religion in general, like done with it because I, I like, I can't, I can't do that again in my life. But like for Russ, I think he would probably, he has the belief in a higher power. Like there's something bigger out there. And I'm just grateful he has that. Right. Because I mean, it's been studied by shame researchers that people just tend to be more resilient in anything that happens in their life when there is faith in something bigger than them. And and so just the fact that he has that, that he's willing to hold to that belief is good enough for me now. It's It really is. And and he's a fantastic guy. Like it's it. He's still cares to help people and he still cares to be true and he still cares to be honest and he still cares to be. And when I say true, true to himself. Um, and yeah, it's, you definitely, I, I mean, the best way I can describe this too is, is like you've been carrying around a glass your entire life, right? And that glass falls out of your hand and it shatters. And you know what glass does when it hits the ground, it explodes. There's no way you're going to ever be able to put all those pieces back together again. It just isn't possible. It doesn't happen. Um, and, and I think that in, in many ways that happened to both of us. It was just like, for me, I felt like he, in the very beginning, the way I would describe it, if I was, you know, being honest about this, which I want to be, is that I felt like his, his glass fell out of his hand. So then he hit the glass out of mine. That's how I felt in the very, very beginning. Right. It was like, well, if I can't have my glass in here, you know, but that's, that's not, that wasn't his intentions. He never, and he told me that from early on. He was like, I don't want to give you anything that's going to cause you to doubt in any way, shape or form. Cause, cause he would tell me, he's like, this is hell what I am going through. And I don't wish this upon anyone. And he's always been true to that. He doesn't call, he doesn't, when he talks to his LDS friends, he doesn't like nine times out of 10, they're not even talking about the church. He has no desire to throw anybody else off. He just doesn't want anybody else to, to judge him for following in his own path. And that we tend to do. We tend to, um, that, that's in the Mormon culture where you, you, there's a little bit of judgment there and it's really, it's really sad. And, and I don't think we realize how bad we do it until you're forced to almost sit on the outside of it and see, holy crap, I judged people and didn't realize I was doing it. Yeah. And, and the other thing that you hit on is the, these three groups of people, right? You have the group that'll sit with you. So these are the people who, um, have, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use Brene Brown here in just a moment because you brought her into the conversation, but they've moved into a place where they're, they're more, they've, they're less ethnocentric and they're more world centric where they're able to step outside their tribe and just see like things for what they are. And so they have this ability to sit and have empathy, but these other two groups are deeply in an ethnocentric view where it's either a, you're, you're, you're not walking and talking and acting as if you belong in this tribe. So I have, you're, you're now a threat and I have to distance myself from you. And then there's the third group, which they don't have empathy, but, but they care. And so they're showing sympathy and, but that sympathy comes across really hurtful sometimes. And Brene Brown gave a talk once and it's been, it's been, um, 
uh, placed with an animated video. I'm sure people have seen it. I would love people to go on YouTube. And there's this lady up on top of a hole. There's a, there's a person in a hole, an animated character, and another animated character gets down in the hole with him. It's the person who's sitting with you. And then there's this lady up top who just has this like peanut butter and jelly sandwich in her hand. And she says, you know, does anybody want a sandwich? As if, as if a sandwich fixes this monumental crisis in our life. And I, and I often wonder if we just replace the sandwich with a casserole, then you've got the Relief Society sisters who can't, or the brethren who can't sit with us and do these things. And, and I simply want to speak to the idea that often in life, when a crisis happens, we all want to kind of fix it. And sometimes the way people try to fix it, it's hurtful. But I think we also have to step back and say, like, that's just where they're at. Like, that's who they are. They don't have what you need. They can't, they can't give what they don't have. They're just not, they're not developed yet. They're not there. They can't contribute that. And so the best they can do is offer a casserole. The best they can do is say, could be worse. The best they can do is say that it's all sort itself out on the other side. Cause they don't have the capacity to sit with us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they don't have the emotional, like vocabulary to be able to do it. I mean, and, and in general, our culture now is starting to, I think, open up to that a little bit, but our parents were never taught that. And Brene talks about that too. Like you just weren't taught how to do that. And I think in that video too, I think I haven't, rem- I, I haven't watched it for a while, but doesn't she like hand the sandwich down through the hole? Like she doesn't even want to get down in the hole. No, she doesn't want to be there. Yeah. No, it's it's dangerous. I've I've been in classes before where the conversation begins to edge towards people who have gone down the rabbit hole, had a faith crisis, and you have people in the room going like I don't know what to do. Like I can't let them tell me what's wrong because maybe it'll happen to me. Like there's this awareness that they don't have the capacity to to sit with someone without placing themselves at risk. They just, they don't have it. And, and, and you'll see this show up in Sunday school all the time. Anytime the conversation gets difficult, you'll see half the room wants it to go away from that subject. You'll see people raise their hand and want to be the watchman on the tower and, and deflect or change the subject. I think you can see these three people every week if you want to. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I think it's great when you, I agree a hundred percent when you said they're doing the best they can. I really firmly believe that they are. Uh, all the, you know, all those people, those three groups of people, and I'm sure there's more groups, but those are the ones that stuck out to me the most. But it, 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 I think that if you can just say like, well, this is, this is, this is the best they've got. And, and it just makes your life better, you know, to, to believe those things. And, um, the other thing that I think is just sad too, is that we have this, just like what you said, the second that is that we feel this sense of danger around a person like, Oh, I could, I could, that could happen to me if I, you know, if I listen, if I sit down and really heaven forbid, have a conversation with this individual. But I think what I would say to that is if you are that worried about your testimony being thwarted, I I don't know. I mean, maybe it's time for you to, to really figure out where your testimony is. If it's that in that much danger of having a conversation with a person, I don't, I just had to have those conversations my whole life because I was surrounded by people of so many different religions. So I didn't have the luxury of not being able, I wouldn't have had any friends. So I don't, I, I wish that the, that the stigma of people being 
dangerous to be around if they've questioned the church. I, I, I wish that that would change. I wish that people could say, you know, do what I say a prayer before you go talk to the person. I don't know. I, I just, but, but doing, yeah, like the casserole is a fantastic way to describe it. Instead, I don't know. Being handed the casserole is great. Thank you for feeding me. But the conversation, I think what that person needs is just to be, just to be, you know, you can even say, look, be honest with them. Look, I, I'm, this makes me nervous having this conversation with you because, you know, I, I've been told that my own testimony, but I, but I, but I love you enough to sit here and listen. And, and if it gets uncomfortable, I'll tell you. I, I think that that, that truth right there, just your honesty with that person would go even farther than, than what you think it would, it would go. Give, give another human being a benefit of the, you know, a benefit of the doubt, I guess is what I would say to that. Yeah. And I also just want to briefly speak to the idea that, you know, you said your husband was ultra concerned about others. And while it may look on the surface, like people who are in faith crisis are trying to drag others in. I, I think you pointed to it. The reality is that's not what's going on. They, they want validation. They want, they want just somebody to say, Oh, I get it. I understand why this happened to you. And you're not some, some fallen person, like you're growing, this is development, this is amazing what you're going through. And because there's so few of us that are going through that, it feels so lonely and everybody intentionally or unintentionally through their words is passing some kind of judgment, applying some kind of label. And there's little space in Mormonism for that person in the room who's on a different journey to raise their hand and say like, Hey, this all looks different to me than it does to you guys. And, and that feel, that's a lonely place to be. And so folks who are going through this, they're not trying to drag somebody else into it. They're simply wanting to create like some space where they can be accepted and be honored, um, and still be somewhere in that mix. Yeah. They just want the connection. I mean, it, that, as human beings, we, we need that connection. It's, it's wired in us. And when you have a, when you're a Mormon, the community is the kind of there for you, which is a, a very appealing in Mormonism, that community. And then suddenly when you don't see it the way they do, it's like that community kind of just like, Oh, backs up a little bit and you, you panic because you start losing the connection that you had. And that's not fair, right? It's, it's just not, that's just not fair. It's not right. And you're right. It's, they aren't there to, to drag you into it. They don't, like Russ said, he doesn't, he never wanted anybody to feel the pain that he felt ever. So it, it's, and I don't know very many people that, that have the intentions of, I mean, I know there, look, there are people out there that just want to, if I'm going through this, I need everybody to know this so that people can, you know, there's those people out there, but that wasn't, that's not been my experience. So. Yeah. Yeah. So the two of you sit down, you're, you're beginning to say like, okay, I'm going to give you this space. And he's, he's being open and more honest and vulnerable with you and saying like why he's doing what he's doing and what he's thinking. Like, how does this begin to kind of, kind of develop and what kind of experiences does this lead to? Well, so it, it was a, it was a good thing that like we talked in earlier about, about our marriage and about that those moments when truth just was so painful, but we needed to be able to listen to each other's truth. And, and because we got good at it during the time that our marriage was, was struggling, it, it made the truth talking about our truths, whether they were different or not less painful. 
And because you were just used to that, you were used to knowing that you could be honest with each other and, and, and knew how to take it from that person and that they loved you. And so we would have a lot, a lot, we started having some actually really, really good conversations that we hadn't had before. And we talked about, you know, we went through a period of time where I said, well, do you believe in this? Do you believe in this? Where are you with this? Where? Cause I just wanted to know where he was with, with many different things. Um, and something else I want to hit on that happened. And, and I don't, I don't know that this happens to everybody. In fact, I, I know it doesn't happen to everybody, but one of the things that was pretty interesting that he said to me, I, I asked him at one point, um, do you, Oh, he, he had started like treating me really well. Like not that he was treating me bad before, but it was like, he would, he would just do extra things that he hadn't usually done the last fifth, four, uh, well, I don't, I don't know how long we were married at this time, maybe 13, 12 years, 13 years. Um, he was just doing extra things. And I, one day I asked him, I was like, why are you doing all this? Like, I'm not complaining. I love this, but, but why, why the extra effort? Like, <laughs> is there something you want to tell me? But he was like, no, I just don't know that I get you for eternity anymore. So I want to do the best that I can now. And, and I remember that being like, wait, what? And I knew that he didn't think I'd get him for eternity. But my what stopped me was I was like, wait, so do Mormon men think that way that they can treat they can just give like they can they're going to get you for eternity. So it's different. Like you don't have to do your best. And he was like, I don't know that it's that because that's not it, that's I didn't feel like he was. I mean, we had been through so much and I, I felt like he showed up 100 percent. But just the fact that he said that, I'm like wow, that's insane. You know, like it was just like an eye opener to how some people process things. So um, I think right around that time too. Oh, the near, the year was coming to an end. So um, I was getting a little bit of anxiety because I was teaching because by now I'm teaching, doc, right. I'm, I'm well into to gospel doctrine and I know that church history and doctrine and covenants is going to be in January, right? So we're going into the year we're in now this year. And I started having horrible anxiety because I knew that I was not going to be able to teach what the manual had because I was looking through the manual and it's not even the manual when I was looking at it for this year was not even updated to like the essays to some of the new stuff that they've talked about. And I was like, I can't teach that. I, I am not going to be able to teach this. And so I went to our fantastic bishop and said to him, um, I don't know what to do about this. Can I, will you allow me to teach still? Cause he didn't want to lose me as a teacher, but he was, I, I said, I need your permission to bring in other material that's church approved, but I want to teach from the essays and I want to teach, you know, from other things. And he, he said, let me, let me pray about it. Cause I told him, if you won't let me bring in other things, I can't teach this anymore. I can't, this, this is going to cause me so much pain. I was like, this is almost insulting. And he, he was like, yeah, I, I get it. Like he was, our bishop in Dallas was, when we were leaving was just amazing. He was so good to us about just everything. Um, and which goes back to my experience was good because we had good leaders, but. Um, he eventually called me back in and just struggled with the release. Like, he's like, I just, I don't, he, I don't think he really wanted to release me, but he knew, I think he just didn't want the lines of people that were going to be going to his office that were going to be upset with something that I said in gospel doctrine. And that was already starting to kind of happen. Cause I was trying, 
I was trying to give people, I was trying to give people, um, new perspectives, but not anything that like wasn't like stuff like the rock and the hat, like talking about the scriptures being translated with a rock and a hat or talking about Martin Harris's wife possibly having been the one that, that destroyed or hid the lost pages. And like, you would be shocked at the shift in the room, just talking about that stuff. And, and so I, I, and, and the bishop knew that he knew that I was struggling with the fact that there were, there was a, there was such a shift in like the people just didn't know that information. And that really was hard for me because there was, that was, that's like not even scratching the surface. That's there already. Right. Like you have so much more that anyway, he eventually just released me and put me in gospel principles. He was like, I still want you to teach, but let's go to gospel principles. And I was like, you want me to teach the missionaries? Are you serious right now? And, and, and it was, it was kind of a funny moment that we had with each other in there because I was like, these guys are young. Like, he, cause I was going to have all the investigators. I was going to have new converts and I was going to have, have, um, missionaries. And I was like, you really trust me in there? But he did. And, and it was good because the manual basically just taught about Christ and I could do that. Like that wasn't, you know, and I, there were some times when we, we addressed like true ways to love. And, and sometimes that means you love in ways that you haven't been taught to love. And, and I had really good responses from that. So, but really that wraps up our time in Dallas. I mean, we had our time in Dallas was special. It was a gift. It was a tender mercy because we couldn't have gone through this in Idaho and had it turn out the same way. And we just had, we were surrounded by good people that loved us. And, and, and by the time I left, like the, the community of women that I had around me that just were like, you do what you got to do. You know, they, they were just loving and understanding and loved me for me. And, and, um, and, and the Russ had a, a few friends. He didn't have a whole lot of friends by the time we left, but he had a few that, that, that still, you know, respected him and, 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 um, you know, always welcomed him back. And our bishop even said that, like, we would love to have you back. If, and I believe he was sincere in that. He, he wanted to have us back, but we really needed a fresh start. And because this, when we walked into this ward, it was like, we were super orthodox, right? Cause we came from Idaho and then we went through the whole faith transition and, and, and then it was like, okay, we really need to just breathe a little bit. And, and so, yeah, that was, that's what really got us to San Antonio a couple months ago. And we just were out, we're surrounded by family and, and we're just at a really, really good place now. At this time, Lonnie, maybe give us a little bit more of a feel too. Um, the way you've talked about this, I think the listener is, a little unclear on maybe your own exploration of all these issues. Like I know you realize like, Oh my goodness, here comes the year of the doctrine and covenants and all that comes with that. But maybe help the listener understand, like, are you, are you reading this stuff too? Are you, for instance, the CES letter or diving into the essays deeply, uh, listening to pocket, like tell us about what, what your own awareness of the messiness looks like. Yeah. So, um, I'm glad you asked about that. So I've, um, well, the CES letter was one of the first things that Russ read and that was really what opened his eyes to a lot of, um, I would say the messiness of the history. Um, and I, I don't remember when I read the CES letter, but I, and I wouldn't say that I sat down and I studied it like paragraph by paragraph. I skimmed through it. And I mean, it, yeah, there's some things that are uncomfortable in it just because you, you aren't taught a lot of this stuff and there's way more to a lot of the stories that are being told. 
So I would say, yes, I read, I, I've skimmed over the CES letter. I read, um, the majority of rough stone rolling. Um, and that is actually, that's a, I would tell people that's a good place to start. If you're curious about the history of the church, because it's safe. I mean, it's in LDS bookstores. So, and, um, Bushman does a really good job of talking about, of, you know, really trying to keep it together for people that need to keep it together. Um, and talking about the history I've also read, I'm in the middle of, um, no man knows my history. And I don't know why they consider that anti-Mormon. I don't know why they tell people to stay away from it. Um, because really it's, I mean, yeah, there's, it just talks about the, the, the histories of, of Joseph Smith and, and a lot more than what you're taught. Um, let's see here. I, I listened to a lot of podcasts. So I started listening to you. You were the first podcast that I listened to. And, and I, and I think it was a friend that actually recommended, re- recommended your podcast because I had been wanting to listen to podcasts, but I wasn't quite ready for like John DeLynn yet. I, I felt like that was a little strong. Like I wasn't ready for Mormon stories, but Russ had already been into Mormon stories. And so I, um, somebody said, listen to this guy because he's, he, you know, he's still, active in the church he was a bishop and so that was safe to me your podcast was safe and I remember Bill like it was exactly what I needed because you were still like you were just validating where people were at and you were saying like this is so messy but I also validate why you stay and and that was like me that was where I was and and so I think I think what it helped I think your podcast just really helped the whole thing look not so scary to me because it was like, oh, okay, so there are people that still stay and that people that really find some of this uncomfortable. Because, like, I remember Russ was showing me something in the Journal of Discourses about tithing. And I remember that being, like, my first, like, oh, my gosh. Like, they, tithing is not, was never intended to be the way it is today. That's really uncomfortable for me. And because I remember so many times, so many moments where we were, like, couldn't buy socks because we had to pay tithing first. And, um, just being newlyweds and trying to make that work and, and knowing that that wasn't really, that's not what was intended. Tithing was intended to be. And, and then you start, you know, reading about the business, the multi, you know, all the businesses that the churches have. And, um, so I, I think that for me, it was like, I was just slowly starting to, and I would still pray before I would explore these things. And, and I was not getting any negative feelings when I would read it. It was more like I was being... See, this is going to sound to some listeners. This is going to be like, no, like not going to make any sense. But I feel like personally, I was being shown these things because in order for me to be where I'm at today, which is still I still have deep love for 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 theologies that are in the gospel. And I still do 100 percent believe in the fact that we were in a spirit world before and that we are. It, it gives me hope. Right. But I don't. I also because of all that I know now about the history of the church and all that I know the way the, the way that certain businesses are run within the church, I feel like the opportunity was there for them to be honest and upfront and transparent about this stuff. And I feel like that part of my faith was hijacked and I no longer let human beings tell me how to live my life anymore. Um, there are very few general authorities that I will actually give space. And I still listen to conference I still do uh, this last conference I listened to, but there are a handful that I will really only give the space and the rest. I just can't, I, it's too painful to listen to. Um, but I would say too, that 
my dad once told me while I was studying all this, he said, unless you know the history behind the church that you were involved in or behind anything that you that you put your whole life into, you really don't know much about what you believe. You have to know you have to know and be and be open and and willing to understand where you came from, as well as where this church that you've given your whole life to has been. Um, I also am reading a book, the book by uh, Grant Palmer, the, the, the Restoring Christ. I think it's fascinating. It talks about Joseph Smith and, and wanting to um, run for president and, and take over the government. And, and it's like there's just way more to Joseph Smith than what we're told. And, and, and to me, it's fascinating because I'm like, wow. So the church is kind of like something that he had on the side. Then when he was trying to take over you know, run for politics. And it was, it's just insane. All that, that you don't, you aren't told, but it hasn't been, this is a beautiful example of like, it has not been, I still, I will always say that I'm Mormon. I will always say that. And, and if our children grow up in a home where their father is agnostic and their mother is Mormon, awesome. Then they're able to see that this is fun. This is a functional, happy family that thrives. And you have two very different believing people that run it and nobody yet is doing drugs. And I, I, my husband loves me and is loyal to me and my children, we sit and we, um, in the, the New Testament videos and, and they ask me questions about, is that what Jesus really looks like? And we get to have awesome conversations about probably no, that is not what he looks like. And we talk about the history of where he came from and we just have these beautiful conversations with each other because I want their foundation to be in Christ. But I also want them to know that their mother is very Mormon still. She just lives it on her own terms because that's, that is how Heavenly Father needs and Heavenly Mother need her to live it in order for the, her family to be fully, you know, to fully function at a healthy level. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's, that's where I'm at. And, and, and you start like church attendance for me is hit and miss because, um, I get more frustrated. I think now it's not as it, the, the environment besides like me, seeing my friends and relief society is good. But when I start sitting in class, I just don't feel like, how do I describe this? I, once I started reading all this stuff and, and learning about it, I started feeling unfed at church because I knew there was more to what was being told. And I, I was just like, this is not feeding me the way it used to feed me. So my reasons for going to church now are strictly for the sacrament because I fully believe in that. And our savior taught how important the sacrament was when he was on earth. And, um, I want my children to know about that, that ordinance and how important it is. Um, and when it comes time for them to pass it, I, and because they, they're not baptized, so they won't be able to, which is tragic in and of itself. But that's when I tell them that it's not about who's passing it. The fact that you get to take it is what's most important. And that's all that should matter. Right. Like this deep separation of the gospel in the church and that the God or that the church is this deeply flawed, perhaps at times very inaccurate, perhaps at times very uh, non-vulnerable and, and the gospel is a separate thing. And here's this church administering this gospel and being able to separate and say, like, I don't necessarily care a whole lot about this over here, but I am going to place emphasis on this piece, which which that thing over there does administer. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, and I want to hit on a couple of the things here that yeah. you talked about. Sure. Um, 
You mentioned listening to conference in certain voices you just don't see as safe. No, there are definitely, right? yeah, oh no, no. I, like there are a few that make me so like, well, and I think part of the reason right now that it is so hard for me to listen to conferences, I have a sibling that identifies with the LBGGQ community and, and I cannot, it's not healthy for me to listen to the messages that they deliver about, about transgender, about gay, lesbian, whatever you are, whatever sexuality you feel you hold, bisexual, whatever it is, like that just, no, it's not safe for me. It's not healthy for me. And if I'm going to stay in the church, this is, or stay as part of the, stay as active as I can possibly be, I cannot give space to some of the leaders in the things that they say. I can't or I will fully be gone. And I don't want to do that either. And I would hope that they would say, okay, that's fair. But they won't because all because that's just not the way that they work. You know, it's but no, I can't. But there are like I said, there are a few that that there are a couple. I'm not going to even say a few. There are a couple that I I still like hope so much in will be brave enough to start talking about transparency. But I don't. And I'm going to I'm going to bet I'm going to bet a million dollars. One of them is President Uchtdorf. Yeah. I love okay. him. Yeah, I do. I really have a tender place in my heart. And if I could, like, I know he's not listening, but if he ever was, please be brave. Please, please be brave. But I, I, I also know how the finances work in the church. And I know that, uh, yeah, there's, they would lose a lot if they did that. And I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I, if the leaders were listening, my message would be like, I don't think they've quite grasped, and I think it's more so in the last six months perhaps than before, but I think they're beginning to grapple with the idea that not only are, are people leaving, but that number is growing, I don't want to say exponentially, but certainly in a way that it's increasing and, and that number is becoming larger and larger. Yeah. And I think the leaders don't capture this. If they're listening, what I would say is you're losing people's trust. Yeah. Like, like what's going on is that people are entering development and the leadership and hence the lay members as well, because they're following their leaders are labeling that growth as apostasy. They're labeling that development as apostasy. And so these people who have entered this stage of growth and development are looking for authoritative voices to help them make sense of it. And all the leaders, except for, like you say, maybe a couple, all the leaders are behind them in that development. And so they're the people behind them, all these leaders, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to be critical. And I know somebody could easily take this soundbite and I could be gone. Yeah. But Elder Oaks, for instance, is one of those voices I just don't trust. Yeah. I don't trust his voice mm-hmm. because I look at him and he is somewhere back there in Fowler stage three and he just doesn't provide a safe space for my development. Yeah. And so I'm looking back there and I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't even give him the floor anymore. Yeah. Because he's not even speaking in a way that even, um, that even welcomes my development. Yeah. And so I don't know what to do with that. And so if leaders are listening, like you've got to realize, like I get it, you're at the head of a church, but you have got to become aware of what's really happening in the world generally and, and deeply within Mormonism, which is that people are on a mass scale yeah. are leaving ethnocentricity and entering another stage of development. And that stage is much more inclusive and loving and empathetic and willing to 
allow another's journey to be just as valid, even if it's diversely different. And, and until we can get to a place where the leadership can begin to encourage that growth and welcome it and make space in Mormonism, this is only going to get worse. And, and President Uchtdorf is one of the few voices, mm-hmm. and sometimes even he's hit and miss, but he's mm-hmm. one of the few voices who says like, yeah, let's just, let's just, let's just make this work. Yeah. And almost every voice other than him in my mind is wants to just act like hard. they're out front, but they're, but they're in the rear view mirror. Yeah. Well, and I wonder too, if like, I know that they're not like, I just wonder is how bad their conditioning is too. Like, are you so conditioned that you actually do believe that the people leaving the church are actually deceived? Like at what point, you know, I don't know because I've never been able to talk to any of them, but it's like, are they just that, just like, you know what I mean? Like, are they that conditioned? Cause they've all, all these people, the, the authorities that come in generations back of their family, they're not going to call in somebody like the, that has any questions about the gospel has any que- They're the people that they put in those chairs, they have to be pretty darn sure they are going to be stalwart until the day they die. So I just wonder how much they've really take, how much space they've given their own self to really look at all that, like look at the history that is laid before you. And, and if you want people to stay, somebody has, is going to have to wake up and start realizing that at what point do you start caring about the people that have left and that they have good reason to be leaving? Like my husband, had they just been transparent, had they just been upfront about it, he probably would still think that Mormonism was livable. But instead, we, we, they bury it. All the time, like they try to make excuses for it. And it's like, stop hurting people. You are hurting people. And I look at my sister and I'm like, she chose to leave the church because she wanted to live. Because her life being bisexual was, was, wasn't worth living if she was going to stay in the church. It's like, do you stop and you look at those people? Do you care about those people at all? It's just really hard. It's really, really hard for me because I, the reason I do this is I, I would love for the church to eventually be a safe place for my children. But right now, it's not. It is not safe for my kids right now. And that, that bothers me so bad because I had good things come of this church in my life. I had really good things. I'll tell you, Lonnie, and this will be, this will come off really strong as well, but I, John DeLynn spoke to the idea that he met with Elder Holland privately and, and he asked Elder Holland, he said, look, of all the things I could ask you, could, could one of you general authorities please stand up and ask spouses not to divorce yeah. their spouse simply because they've lost their testimony and distanced themselves from the church? And Elder Holland's reply was that maybe someday our church will be mature enough that we could do such a thing. Which seems crazy to me. That seems crazy, yeah. Yeah. And and I'm also aware of private conversations with other apostles where privately they acknowledge that that they're in a completely different space than the position the church is holding and but but the, the institution is set up in such a way that they can't publicly give voice to that. And and this is gonna sound really strong, 
But with what you just spoke to, like I call that cowardice. Yeah. Like for us not to stand up yep. and say, darn it, this is not okay. Yeah. And to then try to punish the people they who do, do stand up yep. and say, and, and speak the same thing these guys believe privately. Yeah. It's horrible. It's it is. horrible. And it's, and it's shame on them. Shame on every one of those 15 men. And they can, they can get rid of me if that's the case. Yep. Shame on every one of these 15 men who watch all the unhealthiness and harm happen and, let it and happen. know it's there mm-hmm. and don't want to speak to it publicly while privately putting their arm around somebody and trying to, to help them stay in a little longer. Yeah. It doesn't work. It's a double message. And in the end, that person still ends up leaving because you never speak up publicly. Yeah. This, this church is about who holds authority and never, ever having your inside authority, right? Like when an investigator comes to the church, Lonnie, they're told like, go read, go pray, go figure it out on your own and get an answer from God. But the moment you come out of the waters of baptism, your responsibility from that point forward mm-hmm. is to um, defer your inner authority to the people who lead the church. Yeah. And that has to end. Yeah. It has exactly. to end. Well, you have to be able to like, I don't know. I think one of the things that... I am really just in my own personal time when I pray and I, I say my prayers and I read scriptures and I, I read these books that, you know, because I'm trying to further my knowledge in a lot of things. I think that one of the things that I wonder, and of course, I don't know, right, but this is just something that I ponder. I ponder about a lot of things in depth. I really wonder if, because like you said, this is only going to get worse. The, they can't shut the Internet down. And and as families continue to grow in the church and you have more and more children, those children, I don't know how you could have unless you truly live in a bubble. I don't know how you can have all of your children. I mean, maybe you can. Maybe that's harsh to say, but one of them is going to find information that is not anti-Mormon literature. One of them is going to and, and they're going to start questioning. It's just like. Because there's so many people, the internet and with Facebook and, and social media, it's like, I don't know how you can't see things, you know? And I wonder, like I said to Russ one day, I think my dad and, and Russ and I were talking, it may have just been, it may have been separate, I, I can't remember, but I remember saying to Russ, I was like, I don't really think, and I'm going to say Satan, I really don't give Satan much space in my life anymore, the idea of Satan, but, because I think it's, I think it's a cop out, but I, I, uh, I would say that I think that this movement that is occurring right now is divinely happening because if, if, okay. And I believe that I'm going to be redeemed. I I sure as heck hope that that is true. And I'm going to, it makes my life better when I believe that it is. But when Christ comes back, I really don't think that any religion in general will, will be standing because this is happening over this is, this isn't just Mormonism that this is happening in. It's happening with all organized religions, people leaving in droves, in, in droves. Like they're, they're leaving. And, and I wonder if the whole point of all this is, it is not up to a religion to give you a testimony. It is up to you to have a testimony of Christ. And I wonder if that is what this whole thing is. If we are, if we are, if we are in the end times, if this is a part of our heavenly family saying it is time for you to stand on your own two feet and for you to have your soul open and honest and truthful to what you believe so that when we come back, you believe in us and that you have or believe in something bigger than you. But, but I don't know that I, I, I personally believe in this could be, this is just my own theories and this may make people feel uncomfortable, but I personally believe that all religion in general will be wiped. And it will just be up to us and it'll just be us 
standing with what is left of us after that happens and the Savior. And what do we have then when the religions are gone? What do we have? What do you have? What relationship do you have with the Savior at that moment? And I think that's a question we should all ask. Where am I at personally with the Savior if religion was out of it completely? Yeah, I think I think these guys are faced with the conundrum that they either have to acknowledge that they're barely prophets in the way they've defined prophets for us as an institution. Yeah. Right? Like they're not talking to Jesus face to face. They're not getting him showing up in the room and and correcting course on a regular basis, right? Yeah. And and for them to say that would cause a mass shift in the church of people beginning to trust their gut. Yeah. And that that shift, that loss of authority in them, they see as the worst thing in the world. Yeah. And in reality, every social scientist would tell you that that's growth and development. Yeah. And that that butting of heads is as long as they don't ease that tension, people are going to wake up every day. And I I notice, I mean, I go back to my first 15 years in the church in in my entire stake I knew of one person who left over church history. Yeah. And today, and forget being a podcast host, today in my own circle of influence, who I, who I talk to and meet with and know, I know dozens and dozens of people in my neighborhood, in my adjoining neighborhood, in the, uh, ward that my friend lives in, in the stake that my friend lives, lives in. Um, I am aware. So the, my point being, it was easy 20 years ago. To have that memo. Yeah, yeah. To be oblivious Mm -hmm. to the messiness. And today it's in like you, like today, you know, three people and in six months, you'll know seven Mm -hmm. and in 12 months, you'll know 15 and in two years, you're going to know 35 and they don't get that, that influence of having people all around you who are questioning and some of them are leaving, many of them are leaving and that paradigm shift, just watching it and going, oh my goodness, they left and, and somehow they're happier. Somehow they're having more functionality in their life. Like maybe there's something I need to see here. Yeah. I don't think they realize the tidal wave that's coming. Well, yeah, no. And if they don't, that's tragic in and of itself too, because (laughs) like, how can you not see it? I don't, I, if you're a church leader, I mean, it's like every year now on the, on the anniversary of the policy change, there are people that meet in that park and, and, and remove their record number. Like, how can you not know? that this is happening. I don't, and, and just not, it's the same thing. Look, the, the, you're the go-to, it's the wheats and the tares. They weren't strong enough. Um, Satan deceived him. They, those aren't going to hold up much longer. And the only people they will hold up for are the ones that just really do not, um, aren't on social media, I guess. I don't, and I don't know very many people. I mean, I guess I'm not, but my husband is. So I, I don't know. I just don't know how it can, I don't know how this can continue like going the way it is and, and still have it. Yeah. It's not going to, it just can't, it's not going to hold up. It's just not going to. And I hope, I, I hope for them. I really do. It's like, please, please do something about this because like I said, I, Oh my gosh, I would love for my children, I would love to feel safe sending my children into primary. I would love to feel safe. I, I love the music that they would, that they listen to and I love, I mean, there's a few songs that I kind of want to vomit, but I, I like, but other than that, it's like, I, right today, 
we don't, we did not, our children could not attend primary all year because of what they were being taught. And I didn't want to have to sit my kids down and say, what were you being taught? And have them say, I don't remember, but know that something got in there that I can't now go in for damage control. That's not okay to feel that discomfort about my children in a, in a religious organization. So it's, it's just hard. It's just, I, I want there to be change. Will there be? I don't know. I really don't. And because I don't know, I have to do the best for my family and my husband and I have to be a team and we are a team and we are so incredibly happy. And that's another thing that I want people to know is that there is happiness on the other side of this. And we have a fantastic neighborhood. Not one person is Mormon in the neighborhood and they know we, they know our situation. They know, um, I mean, we have cat, we have Catholics, we have somebody that was raised Jehovah's witness. We have, it's just like, we just, the community that we have is because they get to know you as people and, and you come as you are. And, and that's also been a tender mercy to have the, the neighborhood that we have because nobody cares, right? It, nobody cares. Yeah, no. And that is valuable. And just kind of speaking to what you said a moment ago, like the, the, the dominant narrative, which Bushman spoke to, the, the idea that if that dominant narrative is toothpaste, it's just not going back in the bottle. No. And so these guys keep trying to hold it up. And it just, you, you, at some point, you have to be vulnerable and you've got to say like, yeah, we messed up and our story isn't what we told you. And let's, let's now start to fix it. And let's, but let's not do it secretly. Let's openly say like, yeah, we, we, we told you a story and that story is deeply flawed with inaccuracies. And we're going to work together with you to get this fixed as soon as we can, not to have it be subtle and behind the shadows. Um, you you talked about this was kind of the end of your time in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe from there you go to San Antonio, and I want to I want to jump in back into your story. Like, tell us about the move. Tell us what happens in San Antonio and your relationship with you and your husband and, and how you begin to kind of think through things from that point forward. Okay. So we get to San Antonio and, um, we're just, it was crazy because, okay. So when we moved, I wanted our records to just stay in San Antonio and, uh, or no, not San Antonio, excuse me, to stay in Dallas for a while because I just didn't, I wasn't prepared for the wave of attention that could come with a new ward. And I really, it's exhausting having to like retell, like to set boundaries. Let's just put it that way. It's, it's just exhausting to set them. And with the amount of people that you have to set them with. And I, and we were building our home at the time and there was just enough craziness going on with that, that I just didn't think that I could, I could emotionally like contribute to a ward yet. So we were living with my parents until the completion of our home. And it was, I think we were with them a month. And it was just the most incredible stillness, not having the drama, not having to worry about something that was said in class to not have to worry about what I'm saying when I'm teaching. It was, it's, it was just me and my family and my parents at the time were kind of like hit and miss on their, on their attendance. Um, and so they just, just spent time with us as, as, as a family. They, they, my dad was like, I'm not going to leave and go to church and not be around you guys. He's like, let's go, let's go do something as a family. Like they were, they were always, they're, they're very much like that. Like they just, they care more about family than anything else. And so, um, we were there for, for that month. And then it came time, our house was completed. So we moved into our house and I think we were in our house about a month. And I started mentioning to Russ that I just felt a sense of loneliness because 
we hadn't met very many neighbors and the compl- the, the little subdivision or um, subdivision that we're in was all brand new. So there wasn't a whole lot of the, people were just barely starting to move in. Now it's way more developed. But um, I said to Russ, I said, you know, I still want to be a part of Mormonism. Like I, I, I validate you and I support you, but excuse me, I'm asking you to support me too. And the parts that I still want to be a part of. And, and he was like, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, but he's like, but remember what happens as soon as those records are transferred, remember what happens. And he's right. I mean, he knew I knew. So I kind of like just hesitated to transfer him for a while. And then, um, I was, I had an extra emotional day one Sunday. We weren't in church and the kids were playing on the PlayStation and I was upset about it because I felt that like no matter what church was better than the PlayStation. And I, and Russ agreed with that, but it was just, we were moving in and there was just a lot going on and just, just easier to put your children, you know, have something else entertain your children. And, and so, um, I went out to my car and I just started bawling. Because I was, I, I was just, I felt like I was just stuck between such a rock and a hard place. I didn't want, and parts of me didn't want the church back in my life because of how the, the stillness that I felt. But then there were parts of me that wanted the community and also missed the parts that, the random small parts that were still able to feed me, I didn't want to miss out on. And so I remember, um, I think our bishop from Dallas too had been emailing me saying, hey, you know, do you want me to transfer your records? And, and, and so I said a prayer in the car that day, sitting out my, my driveway. And I just said, I'm scared. You know, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't, you know, and I have this feeling that I should just transfer my personal records, which I didn't, I, it was like kind of like an interesting idea because normally you transfer them as a family. And so I was like, oh, that's an idea. You know, I don't have to have Russ's transferred because I didn't, I just was trying to alleviate drama in our, in our house, in our, in our life. Um, and, and I also had this feeling that like I had a, there was a place for me in all this and that I really did need to have my records transferred. So I went in and I emailed the bishop, our bishop in Dallas and I said, Hey, can you transfer our records from just, or can you transfer my records only? Please leave Russ's there. I don't want them bombarded. So can you just leave them there? And, and I didn't get a response from him for a while. And I think it was because he was trying to figure out how to do that. Because believe me, this, this bishop was awesome. Like if he could have done that, he would have done it. So, um, I got an email back from him saying that he didn't, I, I can't remember whether he didn't know how to do it or whether that just wasn't something that they do. And, and I, I believed him. Like I didn't think he was trying to like pull the wool over my eyes at all. So I, I just said, okay, you know, whatever. So he said, I went ahead, I'm going to go ahead and transfer them to this, you know, your new address. Well, they got transferred and I wanted to just get a feel for the bishop, the leadership of the, of the ward because the leadership makes all the difference. And if this leadership wasn't going to be supportive, then this wasn't going to work for us. I had already decided that I wasn't going to put my family through any more abuse and drama that it had already sustained and not, and, and it, and it wasn't like Dallas was great. I wasn't, it was more like abuse from the church in general, like the, the, the rules and the regulations and all that. It wasn't, we had a really, really good bishopric in, in Dallas. So it wasn't like just on a local level, we weren't having any problems and our stake in Dallas was awesome too. So, um, anyway, so I called the bishop and I spoke with him for about 30 minutes and he was just this older man that 
seems so sweet and and loving. There were some few, a few comments made that told me that he was pretty orthodox that, you know, he, but he knew about, I had told him about Russ and I'd set our boundaries and he was like, okay, well, we welcome you. Like he, I, I didn't get this feeling. He had told me that it was a award with a lot of retirees. And so, and there was minimal children. Like there were hardly any kids in, in the ward. And parts of me was like, okay, I'm actually, I think I'm actually ready to just be an award where it's just people that have, that are older that maybe just don't care about the things that younger people maybe would feel they needed to care about as far as a family that's, you know, transitioning. And um, so I, I felt really good about it. Well, oh, sadly, well, I guess I should back up a little. After I talked to the bishop, the missionaries showed up at our door. The three sister mission, there were three sister missionaries that showed up at our door and they were, they were fantastic. Um, and they were in our house for about two hours and, and they shared, um, the restoration video. And I was really glad my children were not in the room when that happened. Like they had gone outside to play. So it was just Russ and I, and we just made it clear that we would love to have them. In fact, Russ was the one that was so amazing. Like he talked to them about his mission. He talked to them about their mission and he told them where they were, you know, where he was at and that he really wanted, like if they were always welcome in our, I remember him specifically saying, I want really good people surrounding my children and I know you are good people. So please come, you know, anytime you want to come and share a message about Christ, you are welcome in our home at any time. Like I was so proud of him because he could have easily just slammed the door and he didn't. He welcomed him in our home and he, it, it, I just thought he was just so brave and, and, and loving and kind and, awesome for what he what he's been through um and then we had i talked to the primary president multiple times and because i had to make sure that she was aware of our situation and and um she was she was very loving and understanding and the elders quorum president called me was asking about you know if if he could invite russ to um because i because i'm sure they all talked right the bishop had told him and that's fine but um and i wanted that kind of to happen i wanted the bishop to go and and tell everybody look this is where they're at this is what you need to do because that i i i really didn't want to have to talk to everybody individually about it so the elders quorum president called and and just was like hey can we invite him to this can we invite him to that and i was like yes like he's not yes please like of course you can invite him to things and if he doesn't want to go he'll turn you down like it's not but always yes extend the invitation so I thought that I had made myself pretty clear about our boundaries. Um, and then I'm, we had planned on, we had tried to go to church and we got the building wrong and the time wrong. So we drove to two different buildings. It was, <laughs> Russell was like, can we get an A for effort and be done this Sunday? And I was like, yeah. So we had attempted it once and didn't get there. But then we had planned, it was in the middle of a week and we had planned to go to, church that Sunday and Russ was out of town on business and I'm standing in a, in a store and my phone rings and it's Russ and he is noticeably upset. And I, he said, my dad just called and he's trying to, I, it's loud in the store and I, and I can hear something about the Bishop and I can hear, and, and I'm like, what? So I said, honey, like, can I, let me get out of the store. I will call you in three minutes. So I finished up at the store and I get in the car and I call him and he tells, proceeds to tell me that his dad called to tell him that our bishop had called them in Idaho to talk to them about Russ. And Russ was so upset because 
this bishop had never even so much as seen Russ, talked to Russ, shook his hand, nothing. He'd never come to the house. He'd never done anything. And my father-in-law, I guess they had called, he had called my mother-in-law. But what is so, what was so at the time that was so bothersome, well, there was multiple things, but he, so he doesn't have access to, the bishops don't have access to certain information, right? And surely the, the parents of the adult's child's phone number is not on there. So they don't have access to it. And I learned that by the stake when I met with the stake about it. But he had gone into Russ's records, gotten Russ's parents' name, Googled them, found their phone number and called them. And, and, oh my gosh, he just, he left them a message and he wanted to know how he could support us better in our situation. And that really upset my in-laws because it was like, why? And my father-in-law had just been released out of a bishopric. Like he had just been in the singles bishopric for their area. And, and he was, he was upset because he was like, my son is a grown man. Call him and ask him how you can. So when Russ is telling me all this, I just start to bawl my eyes out because I had worked so hard the last four years to get us to two times a week at church. And basically what this had done is push Russ over the edge. He was like, I'm done with this. Like, how long do you want to put our family through this torture? How long are you going to do this for, Lonnie? And and he, I mean, it was just kind of like this feeling of just despair that I was like, how, what? So I tried to like in the car, I tried to contain myself because I, crew, my baby was asleep in the, well, my three-year-old was asleep in the back. And I didn't want to like be crying so hard that I woke him up, but I was so upset and felt so violated as far as, as far as, um, security and, and privacy went. And, and everything that I had built in four years had been shattered in two seconds. So I remember like, like literally at this point, I was like scream crying and I was asking, I was like yelling at Heavenly Father and I was like, I am trying so hard. Like what is going on? And right as I was pleading with him, I had this image that I had seen on Pinterest and it was this picture of a door and, and it's, it, it had a quote over it that said, if God shuts a door, stop banging on it and trust that whatever is behind it is not meant for you. And I just had this feeling. I was like, is this, am I just supposed to be done with this? Because now I emotionally can't take it anymore. Like I literally like cannot take it anymore. And, and I remember telling, pleading with Russ, can we just go at least one time a week? Would you give me one or one time a month? Would you give me one time a month? And he's like, Lonnie, I'll give you whatever you want. I love you, but I just don't know how much longer you're going to, you knew this was, you knew something like this was going to happen. This is, this happens. And, and it was so hard for me. Like I just sat there because what was I going to say to him? Everything that he just said was accurate. And he had just been like, I just felt so bad for him too, because He's like, this, this guy like didn't even come and like shake my hand. He didn't even come ask me. He's like, I would have totally told him where I was at. So I, I, I called my father-in-law because I really wanted to know what, what was the, you know, the message that was left or who got called. Cause Russ had, had basically told me and just in his tone of being upset. So I got my father-in-law on the phone 
and I, my father and I, my father in law and I are pretty close and I have a pretty close relationship with my in-laws. And, um, I remember like hearing the sound of his voice and I just remember saying to him, like, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. Like I, I just like poured my heart out to him because I just felt so, I just didn't even know what to say. I just was so upset and he just listened and he just, he started crying with me because he, he knew all that we had been through. And, and I just said, what was said on that? What, what happened? And so he, you know, he told me exactly what Russ had told me is exactly what had happened. And, and my mother-in-law had at that point, at that time had helped me calm down because she had said, look, like he's doing the best that he can. And, and I, I didn't feel like that Bishop meant any harm by what he had done. And I want, people to know that like I know he didn't mean to cause these problems but it was just like it did it happened and it was bad and 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 he has since you know apologized and and I accept that apology but it it was it got so bad that I had to go meet with the stake and I asked the stake to transfer my records into my parents ward because I couldn't be in that ward anymore with my kids and they made us, um, because apparently the handbook says that you have to write the, the first presidency a letter to have the records transferred when it's not, I, I don't know. He offered to show me the handbook and I regret not reading it. I reg- like now I was like, Oh man, I should have taken that handbook and just like skimmed through it because you know, that handbook is like so secret. But, um, he said, do you want to see the handbook? You know, the rule is you, you have to write a letter to the first presidency to ask for permission. And, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like I, I have to write a letter. I was like, all right fine, whatever. So I, you know, I leave the, the, the meeting with the state president and I, I write a letter and I called my best friend, Courtney, the one that, you know, had been sitting with me through all of this. And I said, what, you know, can you, she's in law school right now. And so I was like, do you have two seconds that you can just like edit and like help me with this letter? Because I needed somebody to just, who knew my life, who I knew I was safe talking to about it, just help me write it. And so she, um, I, I wrote it and then she said, Hey, like she really helped me like see that there were some things that were unclear. And so I, I had to rewrite, I worked really hard on this letter, like really, really hard. And I sent it to the state president and the state president, it was very helpful. And, and he said, we're going to do all we can to get these transferred. And he was very loving. And I had gotten my Dallas Bishop. I called him and let him know what was going on. And he just felt terrible for us because he knew like he'd been through everything with us. So um, and then it wasn't until I had to wait like a couple, I would say it was like a month and a half. And I like literally the state president on Friday. So this is where what we're on Tuesday today, like on Friday, I got an email saying that they had just approved the record transfer. But now I'm kind of to this point where I'm like, I'm just so exhausted again from it that I just don't, I'm just living the gospel the way I like in my own personal way right now. And I feel like that's really what heavenly father and heavenly mother want me to do is they just want me to stay close to them and and do what we're doing right now because attending church right now just seems like it would cause so much anguish and pain on my family and I don't want to do that when we are doing so good right now so you so in the recent you said the last few days you've gotten a message like okay week after the approval we'll we'll switch the records but at this point, it doesn't even seem like that necessarily matters. Well, like, I, no, I just don't. I, I mean, it matters because I, it matters in, in the way that I wanted to see it through. But it's like, 
And I've since asked the stake president if I could have a copy of the letter and I, I haven't heard back yet from him, but I know he's a busy man. So I'll, I'll give him time and space to get back to me on that. But I, I just, it's just like that door. Like there's parts of me that just wonders if heavenly father really like with Russ, like step out of the way so that I can, he can live his truth. It's like, I almost wonder if heavenly father needs me to just step out from the behind the barricade of the church so that I can grow because I think my, I think at some point growth, growth can be stunted when you are checking off all the boxes and when the blueprint is just laid out for you and, and don't get me wrong. Like I, I'm well aware of how it feels when that blueprint is ripped out from underneath you and you don't want it ripped out from underneath you. And it is terrifying because you've been told your whole life how to do a, B and C, and then you will be in the celestial kingdom. And so when you have to like, redo your whole life and figure it all out on your own. That's terrifying. It's completely terrifying. But once you get to a place where you actually are like feeling the stillness and you still feel the spirit, it hasn't left you and you still feel the heavy presence of your heavenly father and your heavenly mother and your savior. It's like, okay, maybe I was banging on a door that I just need to like step back from for a little, for, you know, for a season, for a little bit. And, and right now, like, I want to take the sacrament. The church does not own the sacrament. That is something that was, that was, that Christ taught in the, in the New Testament. So I would love for it to be within the walls of the Mormon church to be able to walk in and take the sacrament and be able to just be willing to carry, be able to eat that, take that piece of bread as symbolism that I am willing to take upon the Lord's name because I am, because every day of my life, every day of my life, I think about them. And I love them and I am grateful for the life and the family that they have given me. I'm grateful for the husband and for the children that I've been blessed with. And, and I would love to be able to just walk into a church building and feel that same feeling by going regularly. But my experience with the way that we are now, it hasn't been that. And that's really unfortunate. Because you should feel safe no matter what religious organizations you walk into, regardless of where you're at or what you believe. And right now, I just treasure these moments of my truth and my hope. My hope, I guess, if you would ask me what that is, is that is that people that are listening that have family members going through this try to be brave and courageous and try to extend an opening ear. And try to sit with people in it because it is so hard. It is so, so hard. And if you're going through it, hang on because I honestly am going to say it's the ride of a lifetime. Like I, but the end of that ride, and I'm not saying we're at any end, but we have the, the love and mercy and grace that I have felt from my heavenly family. None of this was fluke. Like this was supposed to happen in my life. But I'm just sad that it happened with something that I built my life around. And I hope that I can feel safe attending my parents' ward. And I hope that they're loving and kind. And I hope that they they give space to us as a family and let us live the way we live. Mm. Lonnie, what an incredible journey. Like, this has just been 
for me, this has been amazing, and you've spoken to to so many, I think, truths that we're all kind of just wrestling with and and thinking through. Um, something you said, it, I just had a thought come into my head as you were saying it. it. It was the idea that everybody wants to paint, say, me or say your husband or anybody else in this moment who's who's has who has a different paradigm than what the church sees as acceptable we like to paint them as oh they have doubts or they have questions but that's not true like i've never been more certain about my path in this life like my journey never been more certain and i bet your husband and you and everyone listening would say the same thing like this isn't about doubt anymore Mm -mm. this isn't about my shaky foundation this isn't about help me put it back together this is about i've i've grown and I've come to an awareness and a knowledge, and you speak to this too. I come to an awareness and a knowledge that is so much more beautiful than the life I had 5, 10, 15 years ago. And I am never more certain that I'm exactly where whatever that thing is that's bigger than me, whatever that mystery in the universe is, I've never been more certain that I'm exactly in the spot that that wants me to be in. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't that just like such the most liberating feeling that you can feel? And knowing that you're in control of your own truth. And it's, oh my gosh. I think our goal too, as human beings, is to like, like what Brene Brown says, give a hand and take a hand. Extend your arm and take somebody, excuse me, extend your hand and take somebody else's on this journey with you. And and when I say take them on your this journey, it's not to like get them out of the church. It's to just lo- love. We need to love in ways that we've never loved before right now. Yeah. Amen to that. And and that's exactly what I'm experiencing. I've got a beautiful circle of really close friends and I've got a beautiful circle of just a, of friends who are just a little less close and, and we get together often and we just love each other and we validate each other and we're, and we're different. Like we're walking different journeys, but there's no, there's no judgment. There's no trying to get somebody to, to fit in your box. Like we just look at these different boxes and go, wow, that's beautiful. Like live that. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I, I just feel like life is so much more real and, and I'm excited for what, what's to come. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to give you a moment to kind of close this out. So we've, yeah. we've gone through your entire journey. Um, up to this moment. And yet there's, there's still some, a ton of beauty that's going to happen. But right now in the space that you're at, like any concluding thoughts, any things that, that you'd want the listener to, to hear or anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Sure. Um, I think what I would say is that you have, you've been given a beautiful gift of life and, um, you have this beautiful heavenly family that surrounds you. And I firmly believe that they want you to believe in the soul that they gave you and that they, that spirit that they placed within your body. And in order to do that, you have to be willing to sometimes step into the dark and do some really hard things. But I will tell you this. I have never felt more blessed to have gone through this. And and be able to sit with my spouse and be able to sit within myself and be able to 
everything changes when you honor your truth. You you get to pray the way you want to pray. Yet just yesterday, I, I went to kneel in pray, prayer and I said, Dear Heavenly Father. And then I had the strongest feeling that it was okay to say, Dear Heavenly Mother. And be able to pray to a, wo- a woman that I've been told I can't do that to. But that now I get to own my own truth and I get to... I get to do whatever I want and say whatever I want to them. Um, there's beauty in the gospel. There's, there's, there is beauty in the gospel. And I, t- I take that gospel and I hold it close. The gospel that the, 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 the Mormon church holds, there's some serious beauty in it. But I think when we take the gospel, we also have to understand that, that, that all of these people around us that are our leaders are human beings. Yes, they're going to make mistakes, but you, in, in order for it to be fair, You also have to realize that because they're human beings, you have every right within your soul and within your heavenly family to not to to take and to leave things. And and I guess that would be what I would say is that find joy in honoring your truth and going on that journey and sitting in whatever pain might come your way, because that is where the magic happens. Hmm. Lonnie Lamb, thank you so much. I think people are just going to be blown away by all the connections they make throughout this conversation. And that's why I found this conversation to be so beautiful. And when we got to the halfway point, uh, even then I just knew like, man, this is going to be an incredible interview because there's, there's this idea that just in telling one's journey in depth and just being vulnerable and just laying it out there, like thousands of people are making these same connections going, yeah, yeah, that, that right there, that was part of my journey. And I just think it's going to be amazing for people. Lonnie Lamb, I thank you so much thank you for so taking much. so much time. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, it was so great to talk about it. And I really hope that it, it helps people. And, and I hope that they are encouraged to just love on levels that they didn't think they could. And this will be one that I think people will share with their, their spouse who maybe they're in a mixed faith relationship or their parents or their, their sibling and just say like, listen to Lonnie's story, listen to the journey she tells and see if you can better understand where I'm coming from. Because I think throughout this interview, we, we held some middle ground and we tried to show like, here's your husband and here's you and here's your friends and here's your leaders and, and how all of that played out. Um, I, I just think the world of you and think the world of your journey thank and just you. want to say thank you for your, giving us your time. Well, and thank you for, for you, for, for being courageous enough to, because you really, Bill, you were pivotal in me feeling safe. So I, I just, I really appreciate because I know that what you do is not easy. So I really appreciate you too. We'll, uh, from the inside, we'll see how much longer they let me say it. Shut up.